Welcome to The Upshot. I'm Leah Rose. Today I'm talking to Lauren Smiley, who wrote What Strippers Could Teach Uber for Medium's online magazine Matter. Uber, Lyft, they don't pay them, you know, wages. They get paid a fee by the customer for delivering them something or taking them on a ride, you know, and then the company intervenes and takes a cut. You know, strip clubs have done this for decades now. They reclassified all their dancers from employees to independent contractors. Lauren's story focuses on a lawyer who's trying to change how on-demand tech giants like Uber and Lyft compensate their workers. Uber, which is now valued at an estimated $40 billion, classifies its drivers as entrepreneurs instead of employees. It's a legal loophole that prevents the company from providing drivers with wages, benefits, and overtime. Here's my conversation with Lauren. The title of your new piece for Matter is What Strippers Can Teach Uber. How did you come up with that? And out of everyone who can teach Uber a lesson, why strippers and what can they teach Uber? So this was looking at the labor model that is being used in the like a lot of these on-demand economy companies right now. And like Uber, of course, being the, the epitome of the industry um, and its biggest star at the moment. And it's just looking at the way they set up their labor model. And so it's like the workers are not actually, you know, employees of Uber. They are independent contractors. They're considered independent businesses that are just using Uber as a platform to connect with riders, basically. And so this is kind of a model that, you know, the on-demand economy has been experimenting with. But I found, you know, this attorney who has been filing suit against many of these companies, Uber included. Um, and she's made sort of a career on doing this exact type of suit of where, you know, you have employees or I'm sorry, we have workers that are considered um independent contractors, but they seem to arguably be doing the work of an employee um, without, you know, you, what you lose is benefits, overtime, insurance, all the things that follow work in the United States you don't get as an independent contractor. So anyways, this attorney, she talks about how this is really no new labor model at all, that it's been w- used by many different industries in the past, one being strip clubs. So what does a company stand to gain from treating people who work for the company that way? I mean, are they really profiting that much more if they don't full, fully acknowledge that people are working for them as employees? Mm-hmm. Well, you're saving a lot of money in that you don't have to pay wages. They, um, you know, how Uber works and all these companies, Uber, Lyft, Postmates, Homejoy, that's a cleaning company, um, and Caviar, which is a food delivery company operating in several cities in the U.S. Um, all of them are working where they, they don't pay them, you know, wages um, for the most part. Um, they they get paid a fee by the customer for delivering them something or taking them on a ride, you know, and then the company intervenes and takes a cut out of that, you know, I think... Uber out of each t- delivery or each service performed by exactly. the, the worker. So, so they, they take a cut of the fee, but there's no, like, hourly wage being paid to an Uber driver to drive for the hour. Um, and then, then of course, they save all the other 
things like uh, benefits, overtime, insurance. Expenses. Um, work compensation if you get, you know, hurt on the job. And they also get out of a lot of liability or are trying to get out of a lot of liability this way. You know, Uber's had several legal cases now with the guy with the hammer. And right. And the guy with the hammer was a driver, right? Yeah. Who attacked a passenger? Yeah. Yep. So what happens when something when when something like that happens, when someone who's working, a contractor for someone, for a company like Uber, mm-hmm. if they hit a passenger in the face with a hammer, what what, is, what does Uber do at that point? So then the family comes and they sue the company. And, you know, the first thing that Uber does is say, we don't have, li- you know, we have no liability for this because they're not our employee. They're just their own, you know, independent entrepreneur that works with our system, basically. And so these are being challenged in court, and we'll still have to see what's going to happen with those. But it's very clear. I look through the terms of service and, you know, all these, all this fine print that you get when you are signing into these apps and you just say, I accept, I accept, I accept, you know, as you're like, right. oh, you don't read this stuff. I mean, very clearly in there in all these companies, it's just like we have no liability for anything that happens to you while you're using this service, you know, like – yeah, they they very much wash their hands of everything legally. So when someone, a lawyer like Shannon Liss Reardon, is suing a company like Uber, um, you wrote that this type of case is actually posing more of a threat to Uber than city governments and the taxicab industry. Mm-hmm. Um, why are they so threatened by her? Yeah. Well, I think at this point, they've gotten used to the battles that come about as they expand across the globe, that they just keep coming up against, you know, the taxi industry is the first to protest them in a major way. And then, you know, the the regulators in these um, or the legislators in, in these um, cities that, you know, in some way answer to cabs. Um, I think they've gotten used to dealing with that blowback and then kind of annihilating it and moving on. Right, <laughs> and, they're prepared for that. And, you know, their their whole technique has been not to ask for permission beforehand. They just roll out their service. All of a sudden you have 500 drivers, you know, driving for Uber in your city and, you know, liking it <laughs> as employment. And then it's like then the, regula- the regulators have to respond to it because it's already there and functioning. Whereas the this lawsuit, um, you know, Liz Reardon's lawsuit and hers against all these companies in this industry, it's really like threatening their actual business model itself, you know, and saying you're going to have to... She's going for um, back wages and back expenses. That's a big one in the, you know, in the driving companies is like expenses are huge because they're guzzling gas the entire time. And so all of that comes out of just these fees that, you know, your driver gets. They're having to pay all the gas and all the maintenance on their car. So really, that's like the big damage, um, you know, that they're seeking in these lawsuits is like these back expenses. So did you talk to a lot of uh, people who drive for Lyft and for Uber, and do they seem like they have a problem with the way the wage system is set up? You know, there's been some studies that come out, but specifically one just here in the last week by a company that actually does a lot of polling around um, the on-demand economy. And it was just showing that, like, I think it was like 70... 79% or, yeah, 80 or 90% of the workers said they were either satisfied or very satisfied with their job. But Did you talk to Liz Reardon about that? Yeah, not all of them want to be saved, actually. Yeah, so I'm wondering why, what her motivation is. 
Well, that's the first thing that people in the industry will tell, you know, ask, you know, when you call them is, is she is she she gets 30 percent of whatever settlement she gets on behalf of her plaintiffs. And that's just part of the legal system to encourage lawyers to take on these suits in the first place, um, you know, to take on these labor suits just with the idea that the labor Officials in the U.S. can't handle everything, so they need some sort of encouragement for private attorneys to take on these cases, and so they get, you know, a large chunk of the settlement. Though she herself, I mean, as I said in my story, she doesn't come across as like a crass, just like ambulance chaser right, yeah. by any means. She comes across as like that sort of granola activist who is probably holding a sign at a campus protest back in college. <laughs> But she's also she gets a lot of flack. And what is it that people don't like about her? And where is that coming from? Well, it's coming from that they don't like to get sued and be beat by her. I think <laughs> um, she's been incredibly successful um, in suing. She did a, a whole bunch of wage um, wage suits and like tip skimming suits. She won one for Starbucks baristas who were having to share their tip pool with their managers. She, wow, really? Yeah, yeah. With their managers? Yeah. So she sued and won, and then I think Starbucks changed their policy and actually gave the managers a $3 per hour wage increase so that, you know, to make up for the fact they could no longer skim tips from the baristas. And um, so she did a lot of, yeah, wage, uh, I'm sorry, tip sharing um, lawsuits. That was one type she did. And then she moved on in sort of like the middle 2000s onto these stripper suits and the FedEx suit on this exact, um, you know, employee versus independent contractor question. And for the most part has won all of them. Not in California yet where she's suing all these companies, but back in Massachusetts, um, she's won a lot of these suits. So your story opens with a scene with her in the courtroom and the judge in San Francisco is ruling that the the case should move to trial. Mm-hmm. So how big of a victory is that? And do you think she's actually has a chance to win against Uber? Both the judge in the Uber case and the Lyft case, um, both of them came out with opinions saying we cannot just rule from the bench on these things. It's going to go to a jury trial and have a jury decide these things. And really, it's kind of, um, it, well, it's it's saying that it could go either way is basically what the judges both wrote in their opinions and that these employees, they seem to have a lot in in common with employees in some ways, but in some ways they look a lot like independent contractors. Um, A big question in California law, in California labor law, is the amount of control that a, like, you know, the employer has over the worker is a biggie. And so this is what's going to be wrangled with in any jury trial that happens. But I think they are going to be long, drawn-out cases um, because... From what I heard from people in the industry, they're like, yeah, maybe Uber can deal with a settlement of what this would entail. How much do you think it would be? Like, what's what's an estimate? I don't even if it's for all, you know, all. It would be for for back wages, right? Yeah, back expenses. So like all this gas being used by all these drivers (laughs) across California, all brought together in one big suit. I mean, it would be gigantic. I don't know. (laughs) 
Um, but, the, you know, so people in the industry are like, okay, maybe Uber can withstand that. These littler companies are not going to be able to probably withstand this settlement. They'll probably just fold. But it, this is actually an important point. There's several companies out there in the on-demand economy who have actually chosen to go the other route and make employees and pay them hourly wages and I think also get out of the legal headache of what was they knew was going to face this industry from the get-go. And so several have gone the other way. So this piece that you just wrote for Matter, What Strippers Can Teach Uber, is part of a series that you're doing about the shut-in economy. And the series is done really well online. It's gone viral, which is great. Congratulations. Um, So where did that term shut-in economy come from? And is that something that you made up? It is. It's something that my editor made up when I pitched this idea in a story meeting. (laughs) Um, This was... This came out of my own personal experience, and I just recently, in recent months, moved back to San Francisco after spending two years in across the bay, in the East Bay. And in this, like, apartment building that I moved into, where I just noticed the sheer amount of deliveries coming through the door every day. Like, there's just Amazon Prime boxes outside doors <laughs> all the time in my building. And oftentimes when I would be there during the day, back when I was freelancing, I'd be there, you know, during the day. And I would just see this, you know, kind of never-ending, like, stream of delivery people from these different services coming through the door. And you'd meet them in the elevator, and they'd be standing outside the door wondering how to get into this locked building. And so it just was really dawning on me, like, there's just, like, something going on here that you just don't have to do errands if you don't want to. And if you can afford to pay the delivery fees of all these services, you really don't have to, like, leave your apartment if you don't want to. And then I saw that kind of paired with a bigger phenomenon also in my in my building of just it seems everyone's just really kind of antisocial. Yeah. We you know, they don't want to get into personal relationships with people in their building. They're right. Very... It's like no one's really making eye contact, <laughs> saying good morning. Everyone's just kind of getting their deliveries and going right back into their apartment. Right, right. You could you know, just highly efficient, you know, workaholic types. <laughs> in my building. And and I just said, you know, I think there's just some sort of correlation here um, between all of this. And so I, anyways, I was bringing this up in a pitch meeting at, you know, at Matter and the editor-in-chief, Mark Lotto, says, this should be called the shut-in economy. And you're like, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> but it's such a big topic and it's so hard to know how to wrap your brain around it and how yeah. to sort of package it into a piece or a series of pieces. So how did you go about figuring that out. Yeah, the really the beginning of the story really kind of flowed because I've been just thinking about this for a long time. Um, and also I've been getting brochures at my, you know, at the mailbox of like these companies know their crowd and it's like these are tech workers, tech supports tech, you know, this is an obvious customer base for them. So I would get things, you know, in the mail. And one day I got one from DoorDash, which is another, you know, food delivery app. And it said, you know, never leave home again (laughs) in all the caps. And this is kind of what I'd already been thinking, you know, in, you know, sort of more hazy terms anyways. And I'm just like, it's true. If you're a delivery company, really, your company does best if people don't leave home. If they're actually shut in. (laughs) Yeah. Or if they just want, you know, for time strap people. And so... I just I wanted to go at it in a more like from a cultural lens on this whole phenomenon because we've you know 
the, the on-demand economy now is a, it's well into, you know, five years now since Uber has started and it's really caught on in most cities. This is not news by any means. Um, but I just kind of wanted to look at it like culturally. What does this do to, you know, particularly my neighborhood, you know, if if you get so used to using these companies for everything and you just don't do errands anymore. And then I brought in this um, a little bit of a social class angle as well is like you get really used to being waited on. Really, I mean, and I said in my story that, you know, one indicator of social class has always been how many errands you do <laughs> in life. And that, you know, like the 1% or whatever, they do nothing. They they have a butler, maid, chef, driver. You know, they don't have to do chores, basically. Middle class in the United States, at least, has usually been, do they do their own errands, their own chores. Maybe has a babysitter, has a pizza boy, you know. And then, you know, the poor usually do other people's chores and errands, and that's work. And so I was saying, you know, now you have this whole new group that these aren't one percenters, but it's kind of this upper middle class urbanite group that is like buying their way into the services. And this this industry, they kind of pitch this as like democratizing the luxuries of the rich, you know? Right. Yeah. Anyone can. Yeah. Anyone can have people wait on them. Yeah, exactly. And I was saying, but really, does some baggage come along with that as well, as you have this whole new group now acting like the 1%? <laughs> yeah, so what was some of that baggage that you found that people, or, or some expectations now that people have for these services that they're paying for? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I talked to one woman who had been getting a home cleaning service to come in, and it was just like she had never had a cleaning lady in her, you know, in her house growing up. Um and it, it, and so she just kind of found it a little unnerving, actually. She had been getting a lot of them. She likes these services. She had, like, Instacart for groceries and, like, Washio that comes and picks up your laundry, brings it back to you folded. Um, lots of Amazon Prime deliveries. And all that was kind of fine. But finally, like, when someone came into her house to clean it, that's when she was like, you know, this is just really odd. And she kind of, like, had to get <laughs> out of her house. You know, she didn't want to be there, like, watching while she was doing it. She's like, right. this is just kind of awkward. I'm going to get out of here. Um, you know, and then there was another woman who was actually starting her own startup, uh, on-demand startup, where a veterinarian comes to your house. And that's actually another sector of this industry now. It's not just, like, delivering you goods, but, like, services at your house. You can order a mechanic to come and fix your car in your driveway. Are there any apps that get you out of the house? I mean, I guess there's Tinder and... Okay, Cupid. That's kind of supposed to get you out, right? Right. But is there anything that doesn't just so Uber shut and Lyft? Right. Like Uber and Lyft, you know, of course, are getting you somewhere. You're going right. somewhere. Um, you're not doing it on public transit. You now have kind of a more private service getting you there. Um, and uh, you know, I'm not an ideologue about any of this. You know, I've used all these services at s- certain points, and I kind of enjoy the conversations you have with your Uber or Lyft driver. And I, you know. It, I always, I I think I do tend to make more conversation with a Lyft driver than I would a cab driver sometimes because you're in their front seat and it's their own car. And it just feels a little more rude to, you know, right, be silent. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think that there is some connection that goes on there between the rides and the, and the you know, drivers for sure. 
Um, but overall, it, yeah, it just it's more services. It, it's like turned every last bit of your day, like your errands and your chores, into like a monetized like job. Like now you can outsource that and it's actually a job for someone else. So after reporting this story, what do you think is important for um, people who are working as independent contractors for this, these sharing economy companies? What do you think people should know? Um, well, just know going in that a lot of the ads speak to how much you can make an hour, you know, like this is how much our, you know, our couriers and our drivers make an hour. And just know that that's the starting take home wage that doesn't include your gas or maintenance on your car or, you know. And then you have to pay if, if this is all you're doing. I mean, a lot of people are doing this to subsidize other jobs. You know, this is not their full time employee employment. But I mean, if it is, you're paying all your insurance, all that's coming out of your own pocket because you have no employer. So at the end, the take home wage is much, much less than that and could, you know, possibly even be less than the minimum wage. So why do you think some of these people are so careless when it comes to protecting themselves as workers? Do you think it's just because of the freedom of the job of swiping in and swiping out? Mm. That they're not demanding more rights? Yeah, and they're not demanding protection yeah. that most most employees mm. have in the U.S. Well, one thing, okay, so we did see a lot of protests like last year from Uber drivers um, across, you know, the country. Um, and just uh, talking about like the commission or just the percentage that Uber can take because they can change that number at will, you know, of like what percentage they take. They truly are just at the will of like whatever Uber wants to take. Um, So we did see some protests there, but for the most part, I think it's still pretty new. And so there hasn't been a lot of organization. And since they're not employees, it's really hard to unionize in any real way um, because they're not employees. So it it's hard to organize. And also, um, the the app, a lot of the apps don't make it super apparent how to connect with the other couriers. Um, there's a lot of Facebook communities that have sprung up of like Lyft driver community, Uber drivers, Postmate couriers on Facebook where they can get on there. And it's not moderated by the company itself. It's just the actual workers that get on there and talk about tipping and talk about, you know, like, oh, my God, this person screwed me over in this way and commiserate and all that. And so there is some like online, you know, organization that is happening. Thank you, Lauren, so much for coming and talking about this article. I can't wait to read the next piece in your series. Thanks so much for having me. The Upshot is produced by Justin Richmond. Today's episode was engineered by Dorothy Atkins. Thank you again to our guest Lauren Smiley and to Matter. If you like us, please subscribe to The Upshot on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can read all of the stories we discuss on The Upshot at theupshotpod.com. And find us on Twitter at theupshotpod. Until next time, I'm Leah Rose, and this is The Upshot. The Upshot.